Welcome to the IQ Meets EQ podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Broman, Principal Solicitor at TBA Law and CEO of Legally Wise Women. I'm here with Ush Danik, former corporate lawyer, then head of HR, and now an emotional intelligence coach. Good morning, Ush. Morning, Jackie. How are you going? Yeah, really well, thank you. How about yourself? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, a bit tired this morning after having a nine-year-old who's sick and um, hasn't slept all night, but otherwise, I'm really good. Yeah, that's the nature of it, isn't it? It is, it is. That's all good. Okay. So what have you had happen in the last week or so since we caught up? Yeah, look, for me, I've been doing a, um, a bit of preparation. I'm, I'm on Thursday this week. I'm actually speaking at the first HR Hacking Forum that's in Sydney. Hmm. And we've got five panellists or five presenters, and they're all speaking on tech in HR. And then I'm, I'm the one that's talking about the emotional side of HR. And... Nice. The highlight of the talk is actually, interestingly enough, um, obviously we're talking about AI and the introduction of AI in in business. Ah. And I've come up with this thing of, in the future, do you think it would be IT that manages robots and HR that manages people? So that's going to (laughs) be, that's going to be the theme of my topic for, um, Mm. for for this week. Yeah. Yeah. What about yourself? Good talking point. Uh, Mm. Well, we hadn't spoken last time about Anzac Day and obviously Anzac Day happened yes. last week or was it the week before now? It was just over two weeks ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's a big thing for my husband and I because I haven't told the audience yet, but I am a Defence Force spouse. And so Anzac Day is quite significant and it was a really fantastic dawn service that we had and then went and marched, then spent the day really was it's quite melancholy because you do reflect on all the lives lost and how futile it was potentially but I also think about how much Anzac Day has uh, come back around because it was quite unpopular in the 70s for certain so yeah it was a good day to also reflect on well we don't really know what would have happened if we had have lost either of the world wars but I'm still pretty grateful for the fact that we didn't that's right hmm. but it's just fascinating to think about what would have happened if it went the other way hmm. yep hmm. yep and so you think individually about the all the naive young men who went and lost their lives and they whilst they knew what they were signing up for they didn't really i yeah i think it, it was a really good day of reflection yeah hmm. good i'm glad hmm. sort of a a strange thing to transition from though to talk about something that's come up for you a couple of times in your business groups it has and I guess Jackie you know as we were saying before we literally just hit record is that potentially this is probably only a problem that the Jackie and I have faced so (laughs) we are really keen to get some feedback from you and um and and find out from you if this is a problem in your area of, of where you are located And if it isn't, please reach out and let us know. So as with any, you know, business owner, small business, we we look to join some business groups, right? And Jackie, how many are you part of? I'm part of a couple locally, but the biggest one I'm a part of is her business. Right. Okay. So I was looking initially, because when I started my business, Gia, my daughter was only four. So I was trying to find something that was also quite local as well. You know, that whole juggle of putting a four-year-old in daycare and then going to these 
meetings that potentially like 6 30 7 a.m for breakfast mm. just does not cater for for women that were in my shoes so anyway i found a couple of local ones that i could go to and i i found um that when i went there it was it was good that we all talked about the wins right so yeah. and i and i get the psychology behind why we start off meetings and we talk about wins and what we're grateful for and, and i get all of that being an eq coach but it never really got to the meat and bones of, of what I was thinking and feeling. And I, and I joined about three of them and they reminded me again, without sounding cliched and too controversial, you know, you get those mom's groups where <laughs> you go to, and then it's, it's a competition of whose baby slept the most and whose baby's eaten really well and all that sort of stuff. And, and I walked away from the business group feeling that same feeling. Oh, and I was like, yeah. you know what? I am just craving, a group that is, and I'm not going to say real and raw, because I'm sure the other one is real too, but a, a bit more edgy, a bit more raw where, you know what, I can go up and say, I was really panicked last week because I didn't get paid on time. I don't know if I could pay my bills. And, you know, I'm, I've lost sleep over this issue with a client on an ethics point of view or, or wherever it is. And there's all this stuff that I still feel is partly in my head of being a business owner. And I haven't found an outlet yet where, where I can share that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does a lot. I was just thinking the local groups that I'm in are certainly not groups where we share either wins or losses. It's more yeah. a because we're members of a small community, it's just there to be seen and to be helping with various things that are going on. Hmm. Um, and it's certainly, I suppose, not a safe place to be sharing your worries about your business because we'll prefer particularly as a, um, I'm seen as a professional, you know, a leader, I am a professional, but you know, people come to me to solve their problems. I can't be going around my community talking about the problems I'm having. So it's certainly not a safe yeah. place to be sharing anything. That's, um, that's a really interesting point because yeah, you're right. It's like that whole perception of what we think people will think of us. And you almost want to have this group where where everyone's feeling the same thing and it's going to take that one person to say, you know, what stays in this room, what's, what's spoken in this room stays in this room. But like you said, it's that safe environment to really just let loose and talk. Cause at the end of the day, you know, we are going to have those challenges. And I think any woman that says they don't have those is either not aware or not honest with themselves. Yeah, true. True. Um, there are probably quite a few more of a mastermind type group rather than an open business group that do that. Cause I suppose it takes a level of trust, doesn't it? Mm. It is. And I guess it's um, potentially also a group where there's no pitch and no selling, you know, it's, it's also nice just to be around people where there's none of that. Oh my God, how many did you refer me to? I've been to those and I'm just like, Oh, oh God, no, they just make pressure. me cringe yeah and I think also ironically I think if you build that no like and trust component anyway in a group that's set up in this forum you're going to automatically end up connecting better being more relatable and eventually business will come your way anyway without that's the sell. Right. it's relationship without, it is and it's it's um it's that whole selling without having a you know perfected 60 second elevator pitch and your USP and what it is that you do you know and and repeating that every month like yeah. I want to go in there and, you know, say what's really bothering me or, mm -hmm. or even be with like-minded women where we can say, you know what, I've got this business challenge with a client. How would I address this? Yeah. Cause again, as consultants and business owners, I don't think we talk about that enough either. No, we don't. We keep a lot to ourselves, don't we? 
Maybe mm. that's an opening for something we can do down the track is a mastermind. All these things are splintering off already. It is. So look, I guess from a listener's point of view, you know, um, let us know if you run a group that is similar to what we're talking about, or if you're part of one and, you know, feel free to share that with us and, um, you know, we'd love to have you potentially on a, on one of our next interviews, right, Jackie? And yeah, really get a bit more insight into how they run. And I'm, I'm sure they're going to benefit a lot of people out there. I would think so. Mm. Now I wanted to get into sharing my latest interview with you. Yes. I got to speak to Rebecca Huntley. And I know you were really excited by that one. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was, because um, she's written the last quarterly essay called Australia Fair, Listening to the Nation. Um, and so Rebecca Huntley is one of Australia's leading social researchers. From 2006 to 2015, she was the director of the Mind and Mood Report, which was Australia's longest running social trends report. Um, she's now doing Vox Populi research and her recent book, is called Still Lucky. And she also has a show on the ABC radio called The History, Le uh, History Listen, sorry, which comes out in a podcast form as well. So it was a really great chat. I wanted to dive deep into democracy and talk about democracy with her with the upcoming election. And I know that might be dry for some people, but I love talking this stuff. So let's welcome <laughs> Rebecca. Rebecca Huntley, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm well, thanks for having me. You're really welcome. I'm so glad that we are going to have this conversation. I think it's going to be really valuable. Um, but before we jump into the nitty gritty, uh, what did you actually want to be when you were growing up? Uh, I, I didn't know what I wanted to be as a child. I knew I wanted to do a law degree just because my father was a lawyer and I came from a family of, um, of lawyers and did a law degree and really, really enjoyed in fact, I really loved the law degree and I, I, did, I did some uh, some teaching of law and a little bit of writing, but I always knew I'd never wanted to be a lawyer. I never wanted to practice as a lawyer. Mm. So, and then when I was at university, I had this kind of vague idea that I wanted to be, oh, it sounds very pretentious. I wanted to be a public intellectual. So <laughs> I wanted to be. <laughs> and, and really that was, you know, I read lots of very earnest books about being a public intellectual, but I think really the impulse was to, um, I love to research and I love to write, but I didn't particularly want to just be, I wanted to kind of be out there in the world a bit more with my research and my writing. So I, I, I tended to see academia as a very kind of perhaps not as connected to the real life world of politics and activism Mm. Um, and whether that's correct or not, uh, you know, uh, is irrelevant. I mean, in the end, in the end I kind of fell into uh, a research, a commercial kind of marketing and social research career kind of accidentally, but it really kind of ticks all those boxes about mm. why the, you know, very pretentious 22-year-old Rebecca wanted to be a public <laughs> intellectual and has pretty much all of those um, elements. Except for teaching. I do miss teaching university yep. students. I don't miss marking, but I miss teaching. Mm. Yep. yep, creating those young minds. Oh, just interacting with them. Just, I think you discover a lot about a topic when you're forced to teach other people about it and you learn, you know, teaching other people about a topic and how they respond to it helps you understand that topic much better. It's a much, it's a much, it's a, I like that two-way aspect of it. I get a little bit of that with, clients 
yeah um, when I do research but but I miss um, yeah I miss teaching <laughs> and the law degree I suppose would have given you the basis to think a certain way when approaching research too which might give you a different thought pattern to other people as well because I always say that the law degree is a form of brainwashing <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> in a good way I think it, it trains your mind to work in a particular mm. way to think a particular yeah. way and it's not I think that in isolation isn't always very helpful mm. <laughs> but I think that in in trying to think in other ways is for, is you know in parallel with other kinds of ways of thinking about yeah. the world is very helpful mm. I, I mean one of the great things about doing a law degree is that you're never intimidated by people who've done law degrees yes <laughs> and you're never intimidated by legal language or by you know your publisher you know putting a contract in front of you and any of those kinds of things so it's a really handy skill to have mm. but it, i also think that it does that and the combination of that and a phd allows you to absorb a whole lot of, of information and condense it that's it's, it's basically a kind of your brain becomes this great you know absorption condensing machine and um very much so it's usually it's hugely helpful it's been huge i had i worked with a producer at the abc who once said to me she could always tell if a journalist had a law degree or not just by the way that they approached a brief yeah um and she said that um or had been, had any kind of legal training before they even told her so she it does um it's very very effective it's probably quite an expensive way to get that kind of effective <laughs> Yeah, probably these days if you don't actually want to be a lawyer, but I really enjoyed the degree. Yeah. So what brought you then to the topic that you wrote your quarterly essay on? Well, look, I have been with a quarterly essay. It's it's now become a kind of, you know, quite important, you know, publication in Australian public life, I suppose. Anybody who's interested in politics or, you know, in any kind of way knows it, understands it, may not have, may not read or subscribe, but has read one or two, understands that they are an attempt to to be focal points of a conversation in any and and the Editors of the quarterly essay always think, you know, what's what are the kinds of things that are going to happen this year, um, and how do we want to commission essays to kind of intersect with what we know might happen in a particular year, might be the big issues that matter to people. And obviously, to be invited to write in a you know important federal election year yeah. is a real opportunity for me to reflect on the implications of the research that I do on Australian political life and, mm. and this kind of important event, whoever wins the election. So they, they really pretty much came to me to say, you know, to kind of write an essay about where the Australian electorate is at mm -hmm. and their preparedness for reform, how they might respond to, a, you know, the agenda of the major political parties. And, and while there's there's kind of tentative predictions in the in the quarterly essay about who wins, it's a little bit more about where, what do, what, is, what do Australians want from yeah. politics? What do they want from government? What do they want from democracy? And how might there be an opportunity for um, a reforming and uh, brave government to act on a range of policy issues that... that um, that the electorate say, well, the research says and the electorate tell me matter to them. So climate change, housing were two areas that I identified as, as, as the electorate want, wanting some 
a kind of innovative government action on those two questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like I said to you before we started recording, it's less of an argumentative essay and more of it really just speaks truth for me. And I suppose that goes to the depth of your research as well, because so many of the things in it are, are what concerns me and the people that I talk to as well, that it, it, it gives me hope. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> but at the, at the same time, I wonder, do our elected politicians and our candidates read the quarterly essays? I really hope so. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's been a response to both this essay and my last book, Still Lucky. I had somebody, I've had a few people say it to me about both the essay and my book, Still Lucky, is they said it made them feel less lonely. Like it, mm. it, it made them feel more connected to, to the rest of the country and to other Australians. So, and that's a big that's a big thing that I attempt to do in, in the work that I do because I think that we get so, because we've got the capacity to kind of filter our media and, you know, we, we're very stuck in our lives. We might live in a certain area and circulate, you know, socialise with certain kinds of people. We think, oh, other people in Australia must feel really differently than me, you know, and, and I must feel alone and me and my friends and nobody else feels the way we do. And so part of it is, and that's not for a moment for me to say that there aren't, divisions in Australian society on a lot of issues it's not to say that everybody's the same at all but what I'm constantly trying to do is is there is more of a of a majority support for a kind of progressive agenda in Australia than you would imagine there was if you just read the Australian or the Telegraph or listened to politicians you would actually so part of that is about you know where are people at and what do they want so that's really what I kind of try and do in the research do politicians read i know some politicians do and and look the research that i draw on is not research that you know intelligent people across the political parties aren't aware of mm. you know, they, they, it's more a question for them is how do they make that happen and that's when they come um, up against a whole range of i would say genuine challenges in politics that makes it you know hard to act or to know what to do and um, some of those obstacles are really obvious to us and others are not necessarily obvious Mm. Uh, so yeah so I think that the I do know that I get some interesting feedback from politicians interesting a lot of ex-politicians mainly ex-politicians who read my research because Mm. they probably have time to read But, yeah, and I mean, a big part of the quarterly essay is also to get out and about and start talking about the ideas and to get other people talking about them. So I've yeah. tried to yeah. I think having the um, longer-form intelligent conversations are so important because um, we just we're getting all these snippets in the media, as you say, and, and nothing really goes really deep and you've got to do your own research and who has the time to be doing that? Yeah. So you touched on some really, um, a couple of really good points one that you really articulated well in the essay on the point of climate change, that if we just focused on how much the media beats it up, mm. we would think that the country was more divided about it than we actually are, yeah. which was very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I quite a piece of research that I didn't do, but the CSIRO did, where they, um, you know, measured how, you know, large, quite large sample of, of um, participants. They measured how many people, you know, believed or didn't believe in climate change. And then they asked them to estimate how many 
of their fellow Australians didn't believe in climate change. And in fact, it was much, much more than actually didn't. So we kind of imagine that there's more division on some of these issues um, than there actually is. And I think that's because we, we look at we look at perhaps the inaction in, in politics, the fact that it's an issue that has, you know, the major political parties have wrestled with. We've seen it, you know, central reason why we've had prime ministers knifed and undermined. Mm -hmm. And then you, you see the kinds of, you know, discussion in some parts of the media as it seems to be about whether um, it's happening or not. And you imagine that everybody else, you know, that that, that somehow reflects some kind of community division on these mm. questions and and I spent quite a bit of time not as much as I would have liked to but quite a bit of time looking at even how people who are quite conservative on it on political issues feel about the environment and even potentially about how people who are pretty skeptical about climate change it doesn't necessarily mean that they are not going to be supportive of things like investment in renewable energies or doing more to stop deforestation so that we can make sure that we um, don't have continuing Australian species threatened. So you can even win, even people who might deny climate change, you can win them over on other environmental questions on the basis mm -hmm. of, you know, just pragmatism or national interest. And so there's just much more consensus on the environment generally and on climate change, even even on climate change, which has been so politicised over the last 20 years, than any assessment of political discussions or uh, policy development or media discourse would, would reflect. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then you touched also on what I really wanted to talk to you about, and that was how Australians really do support the concept of democracy but how our representative government and the politics i suppose whether it's two-party politics or not i'm not sure what is going on to make it just not seem to work at the moment and that so whilst we support democracy generally we're just so unhappy with the political situation at the moment and that just so rang true as well yeah yeah i think that this is you know, so one of the things that are frustrating um, voters about democracy, I suppose one of them is that uh, they don't always feel like the messages, that the messages that they can send through the ballot box are, um, can often be quite crude messages. So mm -hmm. if you sit down with people and you ask them, well, you know, what do you want from government? What do you want from from politicians and, you know, people will be able to articulate a reasonably sophisticated suite of issues that they want action on. Yeah. But when they get in the ballot, when they get into the ballot box, they really have a, they really have a, their choices narrowed down quite substantially. Yep. And so, you know, most Australians wouldn't necessarily want, you know, government run by a lot of minor parties. In the end, they want government to be able to do things. And so most of the time they're looking at the major parties. They, it's not to say that there isn't interest in minor parties or independents, but mm. people often have to be pushed. People are often pushed to vote for those parties over time because of real dissatisfaction with the major parties. So, you know, often get people who say, look, I'm voting for the Greens Party because the Labor Party's just not taking asylum mm. seekers and environment seriously. Or some people might say, I'm really, really worried about, 
you know, neglect of the of the bush and, you know, I don't really feel like the Nationals are representing us, so I might vote for, you know, Clive Palmer or One Nation or for Shooters and Fishers. So, so I often think that, you know, when... I find there's this often very crude analysis from an election decision which says that, you know, one party might have kind of reasonably good climate change policies and lose. And so people say, oh, well, that, that's an endorsement of a, a position that, you know, supports coal rather than renewables. It's just kind of ridiculous. In the end, people kind of um, making a decision based on, you know, a political party they might believe in, maybe it's a leader they like, but oftentimes they're thinking as the current mob justified me voting them in again. So it's a, it's a very kind of, the, the ballot box is important, taken seriously by Australians in the vote, but it's not always the best expression of their democratic wishes or their wishes for the nation. And certainly what we're getting from both political parties, both Labor and Liberal, is a real frustration about being able to push forward with an agenda that offer the world you know, leading up to an election and then it all unravels after mm. that. Mm. And there's probably nothing, anything new about politicians <laughs> saying no, one thing and doing another when they're faced with the realities of government. But I think most of the time the, the frustrations in the last 10 years for Australians is the, is the instability within the political parties. Oh, yeah. So that's the thing that's frustrated them the most. And mm. that's actually got no, nothing much to do with the structures of democracy and everything to do with those political parties. Who, mm. are they, who are coming into politics? Who is making the decisions? Who are being recruited? Um, what is the character of the people in the room when they start to make decisions about leadership, about policy, about direction. I mean, this is what's actually, this is what's critical. So, I mean, I think that while party political reform is mm -hmm. not something that ever features on, on people's political uh, top issues in politics, there's clearly something dysfunctional about the two major parties to have this level of kind of leadership churn and and attacking each other in the media internally. Yeah. You know, they just seem to be internally dysfunctional, let alone the kind of, you know, some frustration that the, 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 the electorate feel about seeming lack of bipartisan cooperation on issues that aren't going to be solved in one election cycle and should be seen as just absolutely fundamentally in the national interest. Um, in the national interest. Infrastructure is a perfect example. There is always this kind of sense that, you're really going to build infrastructure for the future. You can't, you've really got to have some kind of independent, as independent as possible from government um, yeah. policy to make sure that, you know, there's at least some kind of, you know, some kind of, you know, ability to... Term. Yeah, exactly. Long-term thinking. Hmm. Another one potentially ongoing could be around things like uh, uh, better laws to protect... Our, our national environment in terms of things like people would say is uncontroversial, uncontroversially important, like protecting the koala or the Great Barrier Reef. And then, you know, people just want that kind of sense of, um, and, and, and national security might be another one as well. So I think that, that where democracy is falling down in Australia is not necessarily in our systems and our kind of systems of government per se, mm -hmm. the problems with, you know, our particular form of Westminster government, but something that's happening in the two major political parties to make them 
internally kind of fractious and unstable and and seemingly so so self-involved yes. <laughs> so self-connected yes, yes. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yep. You know, we're just at this moment in the federal election campaign. We're at a, a kind of. <laughs> I saw it on Twitter today. Somebody commented, "We're at a particular moment in the election campaign, kind of two or three weeks in, mm. where some of the candidates that have been pre-selected are actually going out and saying things, or their history is being kind of explored a bit, and and you're actually realising that a lot of these candidates have to be disendorsed because some of them are saying the most outrageous sexist and racist and ridiculous things, or some of them have actually not been vetted. And it makes you kind of think, I mean, obviously it's, it's hard to, to field a candidate in every single seat across Australia, but you kind of think about in this kind of environment, what calibre of people are being attracted to Parliament? You know, oh, say, so that is really what I want to do with my life. And yeah. so... You, that's right you, and, and then you think about the quality of political discussion you know who's jumping into the fray so I, I think there's there's something that really needs to be looked at in the culture and structure and in in you know uh internal workings of the two major political parties if that could improve then i think that slightly we'd start to see some improvements across the board in in how people view politicians i'm never going to really think that they're the great you know as good no. as Heart surgeons or anybody else or or firemen or all the other people we love and respect or teachers. Um, But we could do better than we're doing now. That's right. At some point, at least, hopefully, we won't be embarrassed by who represents us. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, yeah, that's that's really interesting that whoever's recruiting for the parties might be more disconnected than anyone else then as well. And as you say, the culture, not only in the parties, but also on the parliament floor itself and with personal attacks and things like that, it's just not attractive to anyone with much sense to go and put themselves in that position to want to be attacked. No, it's exactly right. And I think um, I did a piece of research last year on young women in Australia, so from the age of 10 to 25, Mm. on attitudes to politics and leadership, all of them, you know, very bright, you know, across the board, bright, ambitious, well-educated, you know, young women. None of them wanted to go into politics, Mm. um, very small percentage of them, and kind of really talked about that they saw politics as, as really, really hard on women. And, and one of the other things they took out of it was this idea is how you looked was so incredibly important. Like it didn't matter what you said, but how you kind of got attacked a for how you looked in politics, like physically how you looked. Yeah. And that does happen, you know. I mean, it happens, mm-hmm. still happens quite a bit. And so how are we going to start to... You know, I mean, we, we still do attract good women into politics, but that was a significant impediment for those young women. And I, I couldn't help but thinking when I was looking at that research is these young women would have seen Julia Gillard kind of relentlessly attacked for how she looked in her hair and her bum and all the rest of it and mm. constant commentary around that um, rather than her, you know, not... Yeah, well, I mean, as much often as her policies. Yeah, that's right. Or her ability to mediate within her own party and, yeah. And that's such a difference in the generations too because it just made me think, you know, when I was seven or eight, me and my best friend both wanted to be the first female prime minister. And, you know, unfortunately, girls coming through at that age now wouldn't want to touch it with a barge pole. 
No, no, they'd be much more, they were actually much more focused on being in, in the STEM industries or inventing a fabulous app or becoming an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. They were kind of, they just saw that perhaps as a bit more of an area, I mean, no, no areas free of sexism, but perhaps mm. a bit more of an area where they were going to be kind of constantly ridiculed for how they looked. I mean, you know, they're kind of this in, the kind of bitchiness, there's a, there's kind of a bitchiness that's come out of the media cycle and the fact that social media is now a huge part of, of what happens in politics. And it's, you know, while social media, there's lots and lots of great things about social media, that is not one of, <laughs> it's not one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so I think that, uh, and also I think the other problem is, and I, I, I try not to do this about too much myself, is that we're constantly talking about, we're constantly engaged in this kind of group defamation of politicians as kind of lazy and self-interested and, you know, just out for themselves and liars and all the rest of it. And, and look, there are, our political systems are not working as well as they can, but there are some really, really good, hard-working There people. are some good people gone in there who've retained their values, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I try not to, I try to talk about the diversity of the quality of our representation because if we're constantly kind of deriding all of them, why would you want to be part of, let's say you want to grow up and be a used car salesman? I mean, nobody, <laughs> no, nobody no wants to do that. Nobody wants to do that. And it's actually critical that we have good people in politics and we have more and more people stepping up and more and more people flowing, flowing through the system, that that's absolutely critical. Yeah, true. I also wonder then if those the younger generation also thinks in those other industries they might actually be able to make a difference, whereas they look at parliamentarians and just go, there is nothing happening. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. There's this, there has been this sense, and on some issues, there has been a sense of inertia. The really, really big things that are really big issues. Um, you know, it's politicians who are dragging the chain. Yeah. So it is clear constantly when I'm doing any work with younger Australians, you know, if they're passionate about a particular issue, it could be about climate change, it could be about you know you know anything really. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Going into politics doesn't seem like the 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 first your first option no, <laughs> yeah. no. how you how you you know drive change mm. absolutely so mm. there's first of all because there's lots of other options now you know the digital online world has offered lots of other options yep there are you know ex other kinds of models of politics and activism that almost circumvent the political system yep. but the really sad thing is that is that while that's absolutely the case Fundamentally, there's a minister in an office signing a piece of paper or making a decision, not at the international level, but at the, at the national level, absolutely. Mm. And so in the end, if you really, really want to affect change, if you want to, say, improve, improve the issues of young people and housing or do anything around the environment or do anything about, let's say, um, you know, quality of education, in the end, somebody's got to sign a form. You've got to convince that person. So we do need, we need people at all pressure points of the political system. We need people going into parliament, you know, who care about these issues. Yeah. Yeah, you're almost convincing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds good. Oh, no, no. <laughs> And obviously your essay as well really focused on having a more social democracy that we've we've seemed to have moved away from, but it certainly made me reflect that early in the 20th century for certain that's sort of what our democracy started 
pushing through was a very or a much more socialist sort of feel to it. And I think even the US or some of the US look at Australia and think that we're quite a socialist country yeah. with access to education and our great medical system and all these things as well. And it also gave me so much hope to think that there are so many people who still think that way. And perhaps we can have a return to that if there's enough push in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, there was one of the one of the really clear lessons Australians took away from the global financial crisis, because, you know, you look at the devastation mm. in America when that happened in the, you know, the United Kingdom, is that people kind of thought, well, actually, it's quite important to have the regular good regulation or good regulation and good laws and good government oversight of the financial sector because we can't necessarily trust they don't always really know what they're doing no, they can't self-regulate <laughs> and, and um and you know people kind of thought that that was you know that was one of the kind of moral lessons coming from the global financial crisis and then also in the quarterly essay what was also clear is coming out of the banking royal commission is that people said well you know again like We've got oversight, but perhaps not even enough because we've got a situation which you've got banks charging dead people fees and they're doing all of this kind of stuff. So this kind of argument that a deregulated market benefits consumers that, that you know, and puts more money in their pocket and it's all fine. I mean, it's just, it's, those kinds of things show, uh, I suppose, the shallowness of that kind of argument. Yeah. This is not to say that Australians are all kind of getting ready to renationalise the banks or no. they have a much more, I think, importantly, sceptical attitude to the idea that privatisation is always the best way to get value for money for, you know, taxpayers and citizens. They're always kind of, or the idea that you, you don't want to have industries heavily regulated because it's all gonna you know because that's not going to work i think they're they're just a, again much more pragmatic asking a lot more skeptical questions about who benefits mm. from these kinds of policies and the promise of these kinds of policies i.e that you know consumers would do very well and you know you know all all boats would rise with the rising tide and trickle down economics all of that kind of stuff there's just Really, really it big around that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that everybody's arguing that we need to go back to a kind of, we need to have a kind of, you know, high taxing, you know, mm -hmm. economy. It's just, it, these are just open questions that people are trying to, are trying to say. And there is certainly Australians have a, always, and I think very, very hard to shake this view, that well-run governments have a legitimate role in regulating the private sector because they know that the profit motive, you know, the intense profit motive in the private sector means that people can get ripped off, even by some of the most reputable organisations in Australia. So I think that kind of, that, that dual lesson from the, from the global financial crisis and the Banking Royal Commission is that governments, this idea that well-run governments will protect us mm -hmm. against some of the, I suppose, vagaries and in some questions in some cases actual illegalities <laughs> of a market which is not properly regulated and not properly run mm, yeah so what then do you recommend to our listeners is it mainly let's keep having these deeper conversations rather than falling into the media cycle and thinking about what we actually want is that the answer, just to keep a conversation going? 
Um, yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think one of the things that's, well, first of all, never ever think that just because the political and the media conversation is a particular kind that, that your neighbour's conversation is, is the same, you know. So yeah. trust your own understanding of your own community and the own conversations that you're having that those are valid. I think, I think we're at a, a really interesting point where you kind of a, a kind of dual, two things are coming together. First of all, this is recognition after, like I said, the global financial crisis and various other things that this kind of, you know, unregulated neoliberal approach to government and markets is not delivering the kind of outcomes people think are justified. It's just making very, very wealthy people wealthier, the middle class people um, working harder than kind of, you know, treading water and in some cases going backwards and increasing the number of people who you would, might argue or certainly in Australia would be that kind of working poor. But what, what, what then is the alternative to that? Mm. We're not talking about, you know, the, the closed economy of Australia no. of the 19th. You can't go back to that. You can't go back to that. We're part of a global economy. But what does that look like and what do you call that? So that there's that. And then, of course, at the... At, at the same time as we're having that kind of conversation, what does that look like? We're also having a conversation about the extent to which climate change in the next 40 or 50 years is really going to start to undermine our quality of life and our way of life. And what does that mean for every aspect of how we run our, our lives, like our, uh, you know, our government, our economy, our society, and what does that mean? And so there's some really, really big questions. And, and I think that... We need to find ways, you know, obviously, like I said, I'd never not encourage people to go into Parliament. We've got to find new ways to get voters, citizens, communities involved in those conversations. So part of that requires a really innovative idea about how we do democracy. So I talk a little bit in the essay about the attempts that some governments have had of using things like citizens' juries or deliberative democracy Mm. um, models. You know, other things happen, you know, you can there's been models overseas where you can where ordinary citizens can be part of parliamentary committees to look at issues you know that we just have to open up some of these decision maker making processes and amplify the voices of the community as part of that Mm. as much as I love doing research and survey work on what people think Again, it's another blunt tool. It's a very much like this is how people feel and then, you know, I get the chance to kind of feed that into the system. We want kind of more direct ways in which people can make their voices heard. Yeah, very interesting because now I'm thinking, well, how can we do that? <laughs> yes, yes the, how is always, the how is always difficult. But, I mean, yeah. one of the, what's clear, I mean, again, I quote some research in the, in the essay which said that there's, there's quite a bit of community support for some of these innovative forms of deliberative and direct democracies. The idea that you might have, um, in the same way as you have citizens' juries, you could have people called up to be part of parliamentary committees to look at particular policy issues. I mean, part of it is, you know, we're all, you know, it's a bit of a catch-22. We're all so busy trying to survive in this yeah. <laughs> in this. Right. Neo, in this capitalist neoliberal world that we live in, that we don't necessarily always have time to go to a million meetings. No. In fact, we really don't. We know mm. that even like volunteerism is, is slightly declining. So, but mm. we, we do, so much is at stake, at stake. We do really have to, to um, 
put that extra effort in. Problem is, is of course, the people that control all these forums and policy, uh, policy processes don't like the idea of change because it means they have to change. And so they're going to, they're going, the doors are not going to be easy to push open, but mm. we need to find a way to do it. I mean, even looking at the, at the climate, the climate, the kids' climate strike. Yeah. And not only kind of how widespread that was, but just how the support, not just of parents, but it just generally, this this is actually quite good, you know, whether or not you believe in climate change that these kids are prepared to do this. So I think we're starting to see in different places new forms of political activity break through just out of sheer frustration of, you know, over 10 years. That's right. Of being concerned about Yep, yep. Yeah. yeah. Just to wrap up then, because if people want to continue this conversation off the podcast, yeah. how do they get in contact with you? So I'm I'm on Twitter quite a bit and I've had um, quite a, a few people respond, often in long threads to the essay, and I found that really useful. So I'm at Rebecca Humpley too, because there's a Rebecca, another Rebecca Humpley out there, but I haven't found it. Um, and then I'm also on um, Rebecca Huntley, Australian author, is also on Facebook. So people often send messages if I've been on Q&A or something and they give me some feedback. And it's always, I've been lucky, I've never been uh, trolled or anything. So it's often uh, just people who've read or seen me on TV or read my stuff who like to um, send me messages and I always find it really interesting. So we'll, we'll respond um, well, that just supports as well that you are saying the truth, like you're not yes. controversial. This is what people think. It's yes, crazy. yes. I mean, somebody said to me, once said to me, oh, you don't have a lot of Twitter followers because you're not, you know, you're not in that left-right extreme thing. You're just kind of talking in the, you know, you're just kind of talking about how most people feel so nobody feels like they have to, to yeah, fight with you. On. Like, yeah, although, I mean, increasingly... Talking about the sensible centre to some people is 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 controversial, is extreme, <laughs> but I hope we don't get too much in, into that space. But yeah, very happy if people want to reach out on Twitter or Facebook. Fantastic. Yeah. And other than talking about yeah. democracy and politics, yeah. you do a piece with the ABC, your history. Yeah, I do. I have a weekly show called The History Listen on Radio National, and I have a column twice a month on ABC Life. So I write about different things about on ABC Life. So again, all bit based on research, but you know, observations of uh, yeah. about what's ha- I think it's happening in society based on research and a little bit of anecdotal observation as well. That's great. It yeah. just lends you to being so broad. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and broad and tired. but like you say at the moment everyone has to work so hard we're all tired we all do we all do being respectful of your time thank you so much much. i love this conversation yeah right thanks so much okay bye thanks bye all right so having listened to the interview uh i know that it really was of interest to you how she created her career having done the law degree but even as a young person even then she was thinking further ahead that she wanted to be um, an intellectual but not an academic and how she's been able to create that for herself yeah look absolutely and and I you know listening to the podcast and the interview it's just you can really hear the passion in her voice for for what she's created and 
And there were moments where, you know, some of the words were just floating through when I was listening and I was just more focused on how she was coming across with that enthusiasm and passion. And, and I think to create something and invest so much of her time into it, which is such a great resource for, for certain people that don't have the time to, to look into things in that much depth and, and have the time to focus on and research. And yeah, and I just felt that, that gratitude, you know, at, at the end of that interview. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. And so she doesn't just research um, politics, obviously. And I suppose that's where her ABC radio gives her that extra element. And she's doing um, research deep into little points in history. And then she obviously does a lot of research for clients. So she's created an interesting career path for herself. I love talking about politics because I do like, I'm very proud of uh, the democracy that we have in Australia, even though the political system doesn't seem to be functioning very well at the moment. And so that's mm. really what I wanted to dive deep in with her. And it came out that realistically, the main issue is probably how the major parties are recruiting their people, because it seems like they're not even pre-screening very well. Mm. And they're, they're not keeping in mind perhaps what their um, values and their vision are for their party, or perhaps they can't even attract some quality people because I certainly said to Rebecca that it's not an attractive career path to to look at the way they behave and the, you know the way the politicians behave and the way the media attacks them um, and the fact that they're just absolutely really stuck on major issues. Why do you think it's a challenge to to recruit and look at the right people that they want? Is it because they're not there or the no, process I, is wrong? Yeah, no, I, I think the process is wrong. I don't think they're not there. And look, there are good people in politics as well. Um, I think that, and I was reflecting on this since speaking to Rebecca, certainly being in and out of courts all the time, you know, when you go into court, there's this element of respect and you've got rules and um, mm. you can't name call anyone and you respect your opponent, even though you're arguing the opposite point. There's none of that in parliament. Absolutely none of that. Like they've just, so yeah, completely gotten rid of all levels of respect. And so how does someone with self-respect put themselves into that? Well, I guess that's a really good point because then you're potentially not being authentic to be able to fit in with the career path you've chosen. Yeah, and that's right. Which, which means you're then acting, you know, against your values. I mean, look, what, what about you? If you were in that situation and knowing how you are and how that's important to you, mm. how would you feel with all that heckling and, you know, potentially all of that? Well, I think that I'd be Stuff consistently quite brutally honest and get slammed for it in the media, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I have thought about politics and I've thought, you know, maybe 10 years down the track, that's where my career path does lie. But at the moment, neither of the parties are attractive, the major parties to join. And then going out as an independent is very risky and expensive. So, again, there's just nothing at the moment that's attractive about it. Mm. And uh, Rebecca also said she'd done some research around um, the next generation of women. So girls from 10 to about 25. And yeah. yeah, none of them were very interested in a career in politics because of, um, you know, what's been happening in the media over the last 10 years and women just being focused on for their looks 
and their body rather than what they say. And so even the next generation is picking up on this and are moving more towards business and the STEM industries than politics. And I said when I was talking to Rebecca, it's the opposite from myself and a couple of my friends. When I was seven or eight, we wanted to be the ne- the first female prime minister. Unfortunately, we can't be now. But you know, um, <laughs> that that's we we wanted to be part of it. So um, yeah, that's fascinating. And I think also that's going to reflect into you know the education system as well because you know, if there's no need for that, like, what are we going to be teaching the future generations? And that's right. You know, what are they going to do to to progress into that sort of career? And what support are they going to get? Yeah, yeah, true. And I made the point as well that maybe the younger generation wants to go into business and into the STEM industries because they see progress and they see innovation, whereas politics is just, it seems like, the rest of us socially have progressed faster than politicians and they're just lagging behind. Yeah. And look, it's no secret, as as I mentioned to you before, is I have absolutely zero interest in it. And I guess partly also because I'm, you know, from the UK and haven't been here and I'm totally not aware of the whole history of of the Australian system in that sense. But for me, it, it is, it's what you're saying. It's just goes against my values. It's, and I, it's still very, very male dominated and it's, it's not even an area that I feel I even want to tackle, you know, like you have passions about what, what you want to make an impact on and change. Yep. And I look at that and I just go, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm putting it in the too hard basket, but it's just, I'm just like, I don't want to go near it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think about the issue of climate change, it's obviously a global thing and a national mm. thing, but it can be a local and personal thing as well. So we can do things at grass level, but ultimately we do need, government to take a stand at some point and make some policies that affect the whole nation or else it just it you know climate change is something that frightens me Mm, yeah absolutely anyway and it's scary to think you know what is the next 15 years in climate change not even 15 even what the next 10 years are yeah that's right that's right so big topics i suppose yeah, look, it's a fantastic interview with Rebecca. And yeah, I think, you know, it was really interesting also from that becoming a lawyer and that whole research angle and, and the skills, you know, to be able to do something like that as well. Yeah, yeah. So we would love feedback from our listeners, particularly if you wanted to continue that conversation with Rebecca. She did say that she has a lot of conversations on Twitter, but also get in contact with us and ask us questions or um, suggest questions that we ask of our, the people that we're interviewing. And we'd really, really appreciate reviews as well. iTunes is the place to review us um, in terms of us getting up to our new and noteworthy status, which we really, really want to achieve. So where can people find you Ush to be able to reach out and give you feedback and emails etc yes I'm on www.ushdanek.com fantastic Um, and the social medias no doubt yes and I'm at jackiebroman.com and also you can reach out to me at my work as well tbalaw.com.au and in fact on that one are all my links to my email and and social medias. So another great week ahead for you, Ush. 
Yeah, like I said, just um, got this talk on Thursday and then I've got the weekend in Melbourne. So going on Friday for work, actually. So I'm um, catching up with my Melbourne coaching clients that I work with. So I, I tend to go up there every couple of months and have some really good deep dive breakthrough face-to-face sessions. Brilliant. Well, I hope yeah. you have a great week. Thank and, you. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>